And Father, now as we come to attend to your word, I pray against the evil one who would seek to silence our ears to the truth. I pray that you would perform once again the miracle of your spirit that gives us eyes to see an expansive view of who you are, of what you're doing, of your salvation. I pray even now that those who feel like they're in a valley, who feel like they've been swept up in a wave, would have a fresh sense of your grace, that sometimes grace comes through waves. Help us, Lord. Help me be faithful. In Christ's name, amen. We can tell what we really believe about God by the song that we sing in the valley. What song do you sing when the darkness comes? What song do you sing in the valley? That's worth attending to because that's probably the true song of our hearts. God often teaches us the truth of where we really find our hope by snatching away for a season the comforts that we cherish most. The Apostle Paul, while sitting in prison, said it this way. I know how to be brought low. I know how to be brought low. He's saying there is a way to be brought low because you will be brought low. I know how to do that. In fact, he says it's a secret. He said, I've learned the secret of having little and having much. Ironically, it's on the heels of that that the beloved verse comes. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Um, Namely, know how to be brought low. Have a steeled contentment that no circumstance can sway. In the book of Acts, we actually get a picture of what this really looked like for Paul. And this takes place in Philippi, which is interesting. Notice the song that he sings in the valley. And when they had inflicted many blows upon Paul and Silas, they threw them into the prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. And having received this order, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. People are listening to the song we sing in the valley. Because they need hope. What song do you sing? Do I know how to be brought low? Or is my spiritual and emotional state tethered to circumstance? And for me, it so often is. This whole sermon is a sermon to myself. So you can listen in as well. Hopefully it's helpful for you too. This week, um, for an assignment for one of my classes, we had to go to downtown to a, um, actually to a prison in downtown. You would never know it's a prison because it's kind of a, a high rise and it's kind of just blends in with what's going on there. And we were meeting with some chaplaincies and they were giving us a tour of it. But before we went up to meet, even go in the space where some of the prisoners were, he said, if you start to feel woozy, let me know because the entire building is on seismic rollers, Right. And the reason they have that is actually a good thing. It's because of earthquakes. And so when the quakes come, it can move with the quakes. When the quakes come, the foundation doesn't crack because they expect earthquakes to come. They expect it. So they've prepared it. They know how to sway with the earthquake. 
This is one of the reasons God has given us his word. This is the reason we're getting an insight into the prayer of Jonah so that we have seismic rollers on our souls. For when the valley comes and God wants to give us a precious gift, we don't crack, but we're in a position to receive it. And this is what I'm praying the Lord does for you and for me today is reinforce those so that we have a a depth to our faith. If you are visiting and you aren't familiar with the story of Jonah, I'll give you a quick recap. Jonah was a prophet of God. Not a very good one, though, because when God said, come, I want you to speak my word here, he said no. Um, He went in exactly the opposite direction. He didn't maintain neutrality. We can't be neutral when it comes to God's will for us. We're either in rebellion or we say yes to him. And so he set his gaze on the farthest horizon in the opposite direction, the farthest point of the known world at that time, right? And so he did that, and then he went on a boat, and then a storm came. Um, and it's interesting because God sent the storm. Give a theology that fits into that, that God sometimes sends storms because his salvation will not be thwarted. The salvation that he intended for the sailors, for Nineveh, was not contingent upon this frail, rebellious prophet, and so he sent a storm to bring this recalcitrant prophet to its knees. Our God is the God of creation. He calms storms with his word. As we see Christ do on the Sea of Galilee, he brings storms to accomplish his salvation. There are no maverick molecules in the universe, as R.C. Sproul once said. God ordains it all. And this is the point of the book of Jonah. This is the point. Jonah is not the hero. Far from it. God inspired the book of Jonah to be written so that we would have a clarity that he is sovereign over salvation and nothing can thwart his power to redeem all things to himself through Christ. Of course, we were looking ahead to that in Jonah. So Jonah's on this ship, knowing that he's going to take the entire ship down. He tells the sailors to throw him overboard, presumably to his death, but God wasn't done with Jonah, and he sent a very peculiar lifeline. Um, Verse 17, chapter 1, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And this is where we find ourselves now. We've been swimming beneath the sea with Jonah. As he composes a prayer, composes a hymn, as it were. He's showing us this is what it looked like when God breaks the heart of a rebel. Medical students are sometimes afforded an audience during open heart surgeries so they can see this is what that looks like. This is kind of what this is for us, as it were. We've been afforded a window into the open heart surgery of what God is working out in Jonah. Because there's something interesting we see in this prayer. It's Jonah's vision of what God had done, even in bringing the storm and saving him from it. Chapter, or verse 3 of chapter 2, earlier he said, You cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All of your waves and your billows passed over me. And you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. God means to teach Jonah how to be brought low. This is how you do that. You know that I am the God of salvation and nothing can stay my plan. 
Charles Spurgeon, who is one of the greatest preachers of all time, they called him the Prince of Preachers, he suffered greatly. Month-long, multiple month-long seasons of, of deep depression. And once he said, I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. So today we reach the end of Jonah's song from beneath the sea, and what we discover is that Jonah, too, is learning to kiss the wave. And this is where we're going to go with the rest of our time. We're going to sift through these verses and see how has Jonah learned to kiss the wave. This is the very end, the last thing he has to say in this prayer from the belly of the beast. What work did the wave do in Jonah's heart? And of course, by implication, what work does God mean to do in our hearts through, through the waves that he brings? Number one, the wave had unearthed a costly idolatry. It's the first thing the wave did. It unearthed a costly idolatry. And the text says, those who pay regard to vain, worthless idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. And there are several things in this text that I find really fascinating. First, Jonah realizes that his rebellion was directly connected to an idolatry in his heart. It was the fruit of a deeper root. It didn't just happen out of nowhere. And part of the reason Jonah had a deep disdain for the godless Ninevites was because of their idolatry. And so this is a fascinating insight into what Jonah is realizing about his own heart. God has opened his eyes to see that beneath the dark flower of rebellion was a root system of idolatry in his own heart. And that before he could preach repentance to other idolaters, he needed to realize that he is the idolater. Now, some have said that Jonah wasn't talking about himself here. He's just making a general statement about idolatry. Maybe, but I don't think so. He's sitting in the belly of a beast in the dank darkness. I don't think he's too interested in other people's sins at this point. I think he's having a face-to-face encounter with his God, and he's being laid bare before him. And on top of that, the rest of the prayer, Jonah's talking about God's dealings with himself. As we said earlier, you cast me into the deep. Jonah realizes he's the chief idolater. And this is when you know that the gospel has gone from your head into your veins and is starting to course through you. You aren't quick to see the sins of others, right? When you get a vision of the crucified Messiah and realize that this was the price for your sin, you aren't quick to strut. You will just sit before your God in awe at the grace that he has had towards you. The Apostle Paul, the man who was a former murderer of Christians and then was given the task of being the greatest missionary to the Gentiles, had this encounter. He writes this to his apprentice, Timothy. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. Paul had that moment. Christ was crucified for him. This wasn't false humility. Paul understood the weight of his own sin, and therefore he never got over the blazing beauty of the gospel that could refine a sinner like him into a saint destined for glory. Have we been humbled by the gospel? And here's a quick gut check. Do you find yourself feeling a little pleased when fresh news comes that slings mud on somebody you already disdain? 
you like that a little bit? I do. Sometimes I'll be honest, maybe just me. But that is interesting. That is interesting. That shows how much I need the gospel to sink into my heart. That I'm not going to be quick to see the speck in others when I realize a plank was in mine that Christ had to remove. If you're familiar with Jonathan Edwards, the great preacher of the Great Awakening, when he was in his early 20s, he made a list of resolutions, 70 of them that he was going to live by, a very ambitious young guy. And there was one in particular, and he was talking about when he hears of the failings of others, what is his response going to be? And he says this, resolved to act in all respects, both speaking and doing, as if I had committed the same sins or had the same infirmities or failings as others, and that I will let the knowledge of their failings prove only an occasion of my confessing my own sins and misery to God. People who have had a head-on collision with God's grace aren't quick to be morally superior. And this is one of the things that the waves had wrought in Jonah. Now I realize the concept of idolatry might be new for some, especially if you weren't raised in the church. You may see it as golden statues or pagan totem poles, but the Bible actually shows us that idolatry is much more than this, and so it might be helpful at this point uh, to have kind of a working definition of the biblical view of idolatry. And Tim Keller wrote a book called Counterfeit Gods, which is the whole book is about the idols of our hearts. And he says this, what is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. See, this is the essence of idolatry. It's not necessarily worshiping a bad thing, even more insidious. It's taking a good thing, a gift, and making it an ultimate thing that will break your heart. Because you were meant to live for so much more. Your soul was meant to feed on God and the love that he has poured out into you, most explicitly, through Christ. The clearest teaching on idolatry that exists in the New Testament is found in Colossians 3. And Paul writes, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and, here it is, covetousness, which is idolatry. That's interesting. Covetousness, which is idolatry. Covetousness is seeing something that somebody has and says, if only I had that, then finally life would have meaning. And as Edward said somewhere else, anything that you idolize, you will inevitably demonize because it will break your heart every time. So what was the idol in Jonah's heart? Well, there were certainly several, but an obvious one is comfort, right? Going and preaching judgment and repentance to your mortal enemies is not very comfortable. This is not something Jonah was interested. Now, is comfort a bad thing? It's not. Of course it's not a bad thing. That's one of the amazing fruits of the gospel. Blessed are those who mourn. Why? They'll be comforted, right? But Jesus also said, the peace I give you, it's not like the world gives peace. He's speaking of a different species of comfort, and it becomes an idol when we start to feel that anything that encroaches on my immediate physical comfort is problematic, Right? Is there a comfort that 
you have idolized that has kept you from speaking the word of the Lord to somebody. Maybe it's a neighbor. I don't know. That you just know, I, I should talk to him. But it's so much easier to just walk inside my house and turn on the TV. That's me, friends. I admit it. I know that comfort is definitely one of my idols, and I hate being uncomfortable. That's why even me doing this is God's great joke on me. It is not comfortable for me to do. There are so many things that would be easier. <laughs> Poor McGivens heard me last night lamenting my plights. How did I ever get in this position? Um, and because God wouldn't shortchange me. Because true joy is found just on the other side of comfort so many times. That's where the good stuff is, man. And God's been working that out in my heart in so many ways. One of them is for a chaplaincy class I'm taking. I have to do 36 hours of bedside chaplaincy work. And so I am actually working with a hospice from somebody who works for them in our community. And on top of that, all my patients have Alzheimer's as well. So they're, they're hospice patients on Alzheimer's. And, and my grandma passed from Alzheimer's. And um, so I can't really even hold much of a conversation with most of them because they're not communicative um, this is not comfortable for me in, initially. It would, be, it would be so much easier to, to not go. And without fail, every time I leave, I think that was the highlight of my week. Always. If I let comfort tyrannize me, I would be shortchanging what the Lord means to work out in my own heart. And this is what's so rich about the insight Jonah has into the nature of idolatry. Listen again. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. The key to smashing my idol, the key to smashing your idol, is not sheer willpower. It's realizing that God loves you more than you could imagine and is so much more for your deep abiding joy than you are. I want cotton candy, truth be told. I'm not really interested in God working out what he said he's going to work out. But he was serious. God really does love us, and he really is preparing us for glory. Those whom he perfected, he is now sanctifying. He's going to work that out. And when we pursue idols, we turn our backs on the God of all love, the God of deep love, the God of eternal love. This is something Jonah is figuring out. And this is also why Psalm 1611 has been such an invaluable lens for the Christian life, for me, and I, I commend it to you. Psalm 1611 says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. God is happy, and he has called you to be a part of his eternal joy. And sometimes that means being uncomfortable for a little bit as he's working that out. That's one thing that the wave had done. It had unearthed a costly idolatry. Number two, the wave had awakened a thankful sincerity. Verse 9a, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving. Now, don't forget where Jonah's at right now. He's in the belly of a fish. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. This is an interesting response. And this is not rote lip service to God for his blessings. This is the tears of joy that naturally flow from one who has been saved from imminent death. Have you had one of those panic moments? Where all of your priorities, that list becomes really short. (laughs) 
and your prayer turns to one syllable, namely help. That's all I care about. I need help. This is one of the graces that comes when God sends a wave because it breaks the delusion that we are demigods who hold the keys to our own destiny. It's my default. In an instant, we are reminded of our smallness and of our humanness and that God is the all-powerful creator and we're just creatures. Jonah, the man who just a few days earlier thought he could outrun the presence of God, now has been brought low and realizes, I'm just a man. A couple months ago, I told the story about how I was swimming in <laughs> at Laguna. This is ridiculous. Last year, and I was going to do some body surfing, and man, those waves were more powerful than I anticipated, and the reality of an undertow is like a real thing, actually. And for the first time in my life, I was in distress. I, I really was. And I had to straight up wave my arms and yell for help to a lifeguard. And straight Baywatch style. Those things are real. <laughs> like, he came running out. I was like, how did this? This is wild. And it was humbling. And that is a good thing. <laughs> my priorities got real low, real short at that time. I just wanted to be saved. And when I was, I was so thankful. My gratitude was so much deeper than it would have been a couple days earlier. A couple days earlier, if my Amazon Prime would have been one day late, I would have been felt wronged <laughs> because I'm, I'm an American, right? And we're so owed. And then God sends a wave and all you want is saving. And then he saves you and you have a sincere thankfulness. That wave is grace, is it not? And Jonah was experiencing this for himself and friends, this is where all of us, we need to search our hearts and ask, am I a thankful person? Is that my default? Or am I cynical? This is why I've grown so weary of social media. I've fasted it for Lent. I'm tired of being discipled in cynicism. I'm tired of it. That is so the opposite of what a Christian should be. We should be the ones who are awakened to reality, that the heavens are declaring the glory of God. Even last night on a hike, just getting a view of how beautiful God is. And then we know that we have been saved through Christ. This should have an impact on us. We should not be quick to be critical. So I'm tired of having a, an endless scroll of all the reasons I should be annoyed about everything I want to reject that. I want, as a community, to be a thankful people, to live in light of what God has done through us, through Christ, right? If you know anything about me, you know I love Chesterton and Lewis, and they have helped me so much just be alive to life. That life is teeming with beauty if we have eyes to see, right? But Jesus said, do you have eyes to see? Do you have ears to hear? Chesterton said, I would maintain that thanks are the highest form of thought and that gratitude is happiness doubled by wonder. That's a good definition. Lewis, praise seems to be inner health made audible. That is profoundly biblical. We should be the ones that is, has praise on our lips most frequently. If this is true, and I believe it is, the implication would be that when I am defaulting to complaining or I have a critical disposition, it's a sign of spiritual sickness in me. It's a sign that I have lost 
the true north of the gospel, that I am not living in light of that at all. And that's one of the reasons why you'll get the gospel each week, why I will, because I need to be reoriented back to reality. Because there's a megaphone telling me all the things that are wrong about everything. Of course things are wrong. That's why we needed good news. That's the point of the gospel, was to inform all the bad news, that there is hope, there is salvation. This world is not all there is. There is an eternal country coming. And we are the heralders of that news. I mean, even gospel, that was something to be heralded, right? So Jonah realized that about his own heart, and that's one of the sweet things that the wave did. It gave him a sincere thankfulness. Notice the, the language again. With a voice of thanksgiving, I will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. And this was a sincere thanks. This gratitude had legs for action, and he was recommitting himself to the work that the Lord had called him to. He was setting his face towards Nineveh now, not with a rebellious heart, but with a voice of thanksgiving. Now we'll come to see that this isn't the end of the story. Jonah is a bizarre lad that's not easy to pin down, and he will bend back. But we'll get to that in another week. In this moment, the wave had done its work. So far we have seen the wave had unearthed a costly idolatry. It had awakened a thankful sincerity, and finally, the wave had inflamed Jonah's theology. It had inflamed Jonah's theology. Verse 9b, salvation belongs to the Lord. Jonah was a prophet of God, after all. He knew this in his head. He had solid theology. But now, having experienced salvation in real time, Jonah knew this in his bones, because he was the one who needed saving. The concept of God wasn't an intellectual exercise that he had worked out. If that is your main reason you believe in God is, is an argument, when the wave comes, that'll crumble, man. You have to realize that you are the one who has been saved. And arguments are helpful, but man, they're not decisive. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And this is the last words of his prayer here. This is not him articulating his theology. It's him exulting in the God of his salvation, for he had been saved. Have you done that? Have you had that moment where you realized that your back was turned to God and he chased after you in Christ? That you aren't doing him favors by being on his team? Sometimes I feel like that. Like, God is lucky that I'm a Christian, especially in this culture. That's absurd. I'm absurd. I am. I've been saved. And if it takes a wave for us to realize that, God will send a wave, and it will be his grace. Because the love that he has towards us is an empty empty sentiment. As I said earlier, what he said he was going to, too, the problem is he was serious about that. And he is preparing you, and he's preparing me for the diamond density of the new earth so that we feel perfectly at home there. And it takes waves to refine us. This is why theology cannot just remain theory. God wants to set it on fire. Have you learned to kiss the wave? We can only truly kiss the waves of life when we know that they are never waves of judgment. Christ absorbed that tsunami. They are only waves of grace now, whatever form they might take. 
Christ has already absorbed any judgment that was due sin, and it was, and he did it. Now those that he justified, God's going to work that out. Now I know I can't possibly understand what you are currently going through, just like you don't know all the struggles I have. But you need to know I'm not standing at the summit of Sinai calling you to this place that I've conquered. I am with you in this. Being in the waves together, keeping our eyes on Christ is a community effort. This is why we need each other. This is why the Christian life can't be done on an island. It doesn't exist. That can't be. This is the reason the book of Hebrews was written. <laughs> it was to exhort us as a community of faith to keep our eyes set on Christ. Don't drift when the waves come. The waves can refine or they can make you drift. I love the way Hebrews 10 says it. Verses 19 through 23. This is amazing. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water, then here it is. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. He doesn't say re-articulate your confession. You've made it. Hold fast to the confession. And that is a community effort, especially if you're in the valley right now or if you're in a wave right now. Do you have people around you like I needed to be buoyed, who are booing you, who are walking with you through the valley, who are reminding you there is hope just on the other side. You've seen it. I know you've seen it. Fix your eyes again. Are you alert that for some in your life, you are that person? It's not an accident, the relationships you have. God means for you to be grace for them. Let's be that as a community. I've talked about this before. Um, one of, it's a prayer book called The Valley of Vision. It's a collection of Puritan prayers that I have found very helpful because they give a harsh diagnostic and it is true and they, man, they have a beautiful answer to that as well. And so I thought as Jonah concludes his valley prayer that it would be fitting for us to read the prayer entitled The Valley of Vision. And I will read this to us in conclusion. Lord, high and holy, meek and lowly, thou hast brought me to the valley of vision, where I live in the depths, but see thee in the heights. Hemmed in by mountains of sin, I behold thy glory. Let me learn by paradox that the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart. That the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit. That the repenting soul is the victorious soul. That to have nothing is to possess all. And that to bear the cross is to wear the crown. That to give is to receive. That the valley often is the place of vision. Lord, in the daytime stars can be seen from the deepest well. And the deeper the wells, the brighter thy stars shine. Let me find thy light in my darkness, thy life in my death, thy joy in my sorrow, 
thy grace in my sin, thy riches in my poverty, thy glory in my valley. Yes, and amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we, I, am often so, so weak. And I thank you for your kindness and your patience with us, Lord. I pray that those hearts that are feeling weighed down, feeling in the valley, that you would go even right now and and meet them in that place, that they would know they don't ever walk through the valley alone and that there are diamonds in that valley. Help me to believe that. Father, thank you for your word, which shows us what you are working out, which, which gives us confidence. Father, if there are any here today who have never come to Christ in faith so they don't have a confidence in their salvation, that today would be the day that they come to Christ. That's the work of your spirit to awaken dead hearts, to give vision to blind eyes. So I pray that you do that now. I pray that you would knit together us as a community, that we would be with each other in the valley, that we would be those who herald the message of good news to one another. God is for you. God is good. He's producing something amazing and eternal. We pray all these things on the merits of Christ. In his name we pray.